Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And Jacob, wouldn't you know it, we have another week at the legislature and lots of other news happening. We start by talking with education reporter Rocio Hernandez about school safety bills and kind of rolling back some restorative justice measures that happened in 2019. After that, we're going to talk to reporter Naoka Foreman about a bill that would change the charter of North Las Vegas by actually adding city wards. Yeah, and at the end of the show, as always, we have all of the legislative reporters, including Jacob, (laughs) as well as our co-workers Tabitha Mueller and Sean Galanga, talking about the deadline day and everything else crazy going on at the legislature, as always. So let's get into it. All righty. Well, Jacob and I are here with our education reporter, Rocio Hernandez. Rocio, welcome to the show. Hey. Welcome, welcome. And so we're today we're talking about restorative justice, which has been a topic of discussion at the legislature and with the governor. And, you know, it's kind of followed a wave of escalating and at times, you know, pretty violent student behavior across all of Nevada schools. And lawmakers are looking to roll back parts of a 2019 so-called restorative justice bill that placed restrictions on students' suspensions and expulsions in an effort to reduce the disproportionate rates of suspensions and expulsions affecting students of color specifically. But so some critics, you know, they say, well, it's well-intended. The bill has made schools actually less safe for students and teachers alike by, quote-unquote, handcuffing school officials by making it harder to remove problematic students. Now we've got Rocio here to talk about it. And Rocio, the first question that I want to ask you is, what did that 2019 restorative justice bill say on student discipline? So it made a couple of changes to the way schools can discipline students. It requires them to implement restorative justice practices into their existing disciplinary practices. And so restorative justice refers to non-punitive intervention and support that's provided by a school to a pupil to improve their behavior and remedy any harm caused by the people. This can look differently depending on case by case and the severity of the student's behavior. But like some examples, like on a basic level is bringing the two students together who were saying bad words to each other, making them explain to each other how they feel or bringing them into a counselor and having the counselor work out, you know, what's going on with the student, what's behind the root of the student's behavior. So things like that. But it also made some sort of changes that restrict schools from suspending or expelling or permanently expelling students that are under the age of 11. So if you're 10 or younger, a school couldn't permanently expel you. And it also, educators, like you mentioned, educators say these changes made it harder for them to discipline students appropriately. They think that it's really this law that has led to some of the safety issues that we're seeing, particularly after the pandemic, which has resulted in some cases in teacher and staff being injured by students. So there are actually two bills this session that would repeal parts of the 2019 bill. One is from Assemblywoman Angie Taylor. She's a Reno Democrat, and she's also a former Washoe County School Board member and president. And then the other is from Republican Governor Joe Lombardo. So what are those bills actually trying to accomplish? So they rolled back parts of that 2019 bill. And one of the most controversial parts of the bill that were recently amended to say that students now as young as six years old could be suspended, expelled, or permanently expelled. And a recent Assembly Education Committee meeting, Assemblywoman Clara Thompson actually took a lot of issue with that kind of language. She kind of argued that these are students six years old 
that maybe don't even know really how to read or write. And we're already, you know, essentially throwing them out of the classroom under these bills. But Assemblywoman Taylor's bill does include a provision to allow opportunity for students who are expelled to come back to school. Districts or charters would have to come up with a plan on how those students can reinstate themselves into the schools. And the bills do keep some of the elements of the original restorative justice bill. Taylor recently told me that the goal of her bill isn't to kick students out of school, but rather provide them in a space where they could get the support that they need to address their behaviors. Yeah. And so, you know, one other thing is not everyone is in support of this. And, and what concerns do they have? Yeah. So a group of community members recently came out against both bills last week. They were concerned that other than virtual schools, private schools or other homeschooling options, there aren't many alternative school choices for elementary students who under these bills are expelled. And so there's, they're asking the lawmakers to reconsider either that age or find some sort of options for these students when they do get expelled if these bills pass. And so I recently talked to Taylor today. And she told me that she had been thinking about this issue even before the letter by these community members went out last Friday. And she's looking to make some changes to her bill to give school districts and other school officials time to implement what school options these elementary school students could have if they do end up expelled. And she also told me that she's open to conversations on the age parameters in her bill. Like, is six years old too young to expel or suspend a student? So she said that, you know, she's open to more conversations about this and the other issues brought up. And, you know, another thing is that this restorative justice, but then also education in general, has been a big part of Lombardo's entrance into the, being governor. During his State of the State speech, he, he talked a lot about violence in schools and, and education funding and all this stuff. So how does this how, how has he kind of done so far? Jacob, you know, you've been covering the, the legislature. When we were talking to people at the beginning of the session, everyone was saying this is going to be the education session. Here's one of the bills. Is this kind of an example of a lot of other bills or, you know, what have we been seeing? Yeah, we have seen approximately one bajillion education bills. So I think it's fair to call it the education session. But more seriously, I think, you know, we're looking at a massive injection of state money into K-12 education through the funding formula, about $2 billion, right? It's a historic investment. And I think everyone's very excited, but also very nervous. But during the campaign trail, Lombardo tried to cast his campaign as being one of, you know, I'm going to be the education governor. And he's really hung his hat on school safety, right? And this restorative justice bill, basically saying that what, what Democrats did in 2019 doesn't work. Now, I should mention a lot of these bills that Lombardo has criticized now as Democratic bills were bipartisan back then, but he is owning the sort of repeal of these measures as a Republican. And we've seen his PAC in particular be very active, sort of messaging, grabbing onto this sort of emotional and evocative testimony from teachers who have been attacked in the classroom and who are, are very concerned. He has an even bigger education bill, AB 400. It's an omnibus bill with a, a billion different parts. And basically, it would do everything from creating an office of school choice to raising the income threshold to use an opportunity scholarships. This is essentially a state pot of money that allows people to go to private schools. And it would also reinstate a provision that would allow schools to hold back kids who can't read by grade level by grade three, which is something the Democrats also rolled back in, in 2019. So there's sort of a, a lot of provisions baked into there, and it's getting its first hearing this week. Well, all right. Well, on that, OCO, it sounds like you're going to be very busy following lots of education bills. And I'm Jacob, as you're up in Carson, you'll also be following those. So thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah. Talk to you soon, Joey. 
Well, Jacob and I are now joined by reporter Naoka Foreman. Naoka, how's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me, Joey. Yeah, yeah. And so you have been working on reporting on a specific bill that's been going through the legislative process now, and it's about North Las Vegas and specifically expanding the city council in North Las Vegas. So can you tell me a little bit about this bill? Yes. So the bill was brought forth by Senator Pat Spearman, and she's seeking to expand the city council by two seats. So adding two members. And the governor said he will not support this bill because these types of decisions should be decided on by the city charter. But what's unique about this situation is the city charter actually testified in support of the policy and said that they were not allowed to speak about issues that the city council did not want to talk about in their meetings. So just for the listeners, what is the difference between the city charter and the city council? The city council are the elected members by the people, whereas the charter committee is a smaller group within the city's infrastructure who can suggest different ideas for the city council to implement. Gotcha. So to be real clear about what's going on here, the city charter said they like this bill, but the city council has not, or does not, I should say. Correct. City officials came to the hearing and they asked lawmakers not to support the policy, including Mayor Pamela Goins Brown and all of the city council members sent in letters in opposition opposing the policy. And one quick dynamic I want to get at here is you mentioned that this bill was brought forth by Pat Spearman. She's a Democratic senator, but she was also most recently a mayoral candidate against Pamela Goins Brown. Is that right? Correct. So her and Pamela Goins Brown, they were running for the first black mayor of Nevada, but in North Las Vegas. And um, that brought on a spirited campaign, a high spirited campaign. And now this bill is is coming from Spearman. So it comes off controversial, but she did say that she would not seek election for a city council should the bill become law. And, and why expand the city council? What's the what would the, the point of that be? Spearman's point, as well as other commenters who supported the policy, they said that North Las Vegas has outgrown its leadership and that the current city council, their wards are too large. And now there's problems in areas that are are being neglected because their wards are too large. And then so why does the current city council then not support this? They said it's a form of overreach and that they should trust the current leaders right now. So they feel like they're kind of being like circumvented and that this is this is not the legislators place to, to be messing with the city. Yes. Okay. Do you feel like this, this is like Spearman like kind of trying to get back at losing the, the mayoral race? When Spearman presented the bill, she said she thought of the policy in 2019 before she ran because North Las Vegas was presenting themselves as a diverse city council. So she said the policy would actually investigate that and hold them accountable because it also included diversity audit of managerial positions to see if it was truly as diverse as it's being presented. So you mentioned at the beginning of this discussion that Governor Lombardo said that he would veto this bill if it was to pass. It hasn't passed yet. It's still going through the legislative process. But this is kind of a big deal because this is the first real indication that he would veto a bill 
this session, right? Yes. This was the first time he's publicly announced and also sent a press release just letting folks know this is one policy that he will not support. In his comments, he mentioned that, you know, 18 mayors warned of unintended consequences of supporting a policy like this. And just to contextualize this, Lombardo's office has been very cagey to this point with bills that are not his. So unless his office introduced it, his standard line has been, we will comment once it comes across our desk. So like Joy said, perhaps notable that he's commenting now rather than later. All right, Naoka, well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this bill. And I'm sure we'll have you on again to talk about more interesting stuff going on around the state. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, another Tuesday is coming up, and that means another deadline already. I cannot believe it. Jacob and I are joined by the rest of the legislative team, Tabitha Mueller, Sean Galanka. Happy Tuesday morning. We're talking about the legislature, everybody. (laughs) Hi, Joey. Hi, Joey. And Jacob, who is right beside me currently. (laughs) All right. Another, the third deadline out of five deadlines? Is there five deadlines in the legislature? Let's just say there there are four major bill passage deadlines, and this is the second one. <laughs> okay, that's the best way to put it. But yes, we are at the second major bill passage deadline. What does that mean? What's going on at the ledge? Tell me a little bit about this deadline, and then we'll get into what you guys are following specifically. Yeah, so today as we're recording this, we're coming up on the first House passage deadline, which basically means that all those bills that we talked to you about about a week and a half ago, a week ago, I guess, really, that passed out of their first committee have to be passed out of their first house by the end of Tuesday. And so we're basically tracking a bunch of floor votes. The Assembly and Senate are each preparing today to vote on dozens of bills. Basically, this is the house-wide vote. So, you know, all 42 Assembly members voting on a bill, all 21 senators voting on a bill, and just, uh, you know, advancing those to their second house. So we're expecting long floor sessions running into the evening tonight as, as those votes occur. And so just for some context for the audience, if there was a bill on prescription drug pricing, that would be first heard in a committee, presented and heard in a committee, probably the Health and Human Services Committee, and then taken to whatever house it would go into. So let's say that was a assembly bill, right? So an assembly bill would go through the Health and Human Services Committee, then it would go to the whole assembly, which would have to pass it. And then that would go to the Senate, which would have to pass it again before the governor signs it into law. A nice long process. So how many bills are we expecting to die during this first House passage? Probably not that many. Last session, we saw seven bills die, I think, at this at this part of the session. So this isn't like a big bill death. We'll likely see more bills die at the second committee passage deadline as the other House starts to hear bills and then vote on them. So, you know, they've been voting on a bunch of stuff. We're going through all the the committees and now under their houses. And so there's been a lot of votes happening. And is that that's kind of why things are kind of set in stone. Do you kind of see a path out of tonight already? A lot of bills, once they've gone through committee, usually those committees will propose amendments and then those amendments get voted on on the floor. And basically, once those bills have been amended, it's usually in a form that is either much more narrow in scope than the original bill text, or at least much more palatable to the entire House in question. So the bills as they're presented now are in their most agreeable form yet. So moving away from procedural stuff and towards the actual meat of the bills, what are kind of those big bills that are going to be being heard today? What are you guys following and paying attention to? 
We're expecting a drug pricing bill to be heard today. That's AB 250. And essentially what that would do is make it so that any Medicare negotiated drug price would set that drug price for the whole rest of the state. And that's part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So that one we're expecting to see. Well, Julie, I'd say between the two houses, we're getting prepared for probably 130, 140 votes. I think that there are probably about 25, 30 bills in total that we're really paying close attention to that we're waiting to see passed out. A few things that I'm paying attention to, we have a pair of fentanyl bills backed by Senate Democrats. These would basically ramp up penalties for fentanyl trafficking. We also have a bunch of different housing bills addressing homelessness, addressing tenant protections. One bill I'm also paying attention to is a bill from Senator Dina Neal that would basically prohibit the governor's Office of Economic Development from issuing tax abatements totaling more than $500,000. I think this could potentially be a controversial proposal. It would give the legislature power over any abatements larger than that. And it'll be interesting to see whether that's something that you know lawmakers on, on the Republican side would be willing to support. I just don't really know ahead of that vote happening at this point. A lot of the bills that we're talking about today on the day of the deadline are the most controversial bills. A lot of the uncontroversial stuff has already passed. It's cruised through, no problems. Now it's all the stuff that's been really amended down, really fiddled with in committee, or is just simply controversial. So I think two bills I'm watching are the school safety bills, one from the governor's office, one from legislative Democrats that would basically be handling this restorative justice bill from 2019 and revisions in in there. We've also got bills dealing with guns. We've got bills dealing with water. We've got bills dealing with all kinds of stuff. And I think that one thing to note is a lot of these bills, like I mentioned earlier, have really been guided by amendment. What I'm thinking of is this bill about trains. Originally, it would have limited the length of trains that can come into Nevada to about one and a half miles down from an average of like three miles. Um, That provision is totally gone. And now the bill is much more about these sort of trackside detectors for defects in trains. And just to wrap up, one thing that, you know, there's no bills about this yet, but it was a big thing in the news. And I want to hear what you guys think about it. Tabitha, you broke the story along with reporter Howard Stutz. The A's, the Oakland Athletics, my second favorite baseball team, are potentially coming to Nevada. The the, the deal seems to be moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. So one of the things that I do want to preface this with is that we don't have any formal bill language yet, right? This is all just talk. And I think part of it is, is that you have lobbyists who are trying to see what lawmakers are amenable to. There's nothing yet set in stone. But we do have some outlines of a deal that might be coming through, as we've heard kind of from sourcing and and different folks in the building. Now, one part of this that is sort of solidified is that Oakland A's did acquire land as part of an agreement. But to keep that land, it's likely that they'll need some legislation. And they're asking for what sounds roughly like $500 million in tax abatements. But I'm hesitant to use tax abatements just because the way they're describing that is the lawmakers have said they're not open to new taxes. So there's discussions about what that would look like. It looks like it might be something like a special tax district so that if they build there and if they have games that anything sold within like X radius miles or whatever of that area, all of the tax money from that would go to the stadium. But it's still very loose. It's still kind of coming through. But it is something that we're expecting to see come in the legislature. It's kind of a question of when, but we are kind of on a deadline here. I mean, they could do a special session if they wanted. The A's did say that like January 1st is sort of their deadline. So it's kind of anyone's guess as to what and when we're going to get things. 
I think one X factor here is that the the A's are not a good baseball team. And a lot of that was sort of intentional by the owner in a long-running feud with the city of Oakland and the, the, the quality of the stadium there in a fight to get more public money for a new stadium on the waterfront. And so I think it's an open question. When the A's actually do move to Las Vegas, how good are they going to be? And is that going to impact whether or not people actually go? Because people forget that when the Golden Knights started in 2017, they were an instant cup contender. I'm not sure that Las Vegas sports fans have really dealt with a bottom feeder team yet. So lots of unanswered questions, even beyond just the funding element. The A's are currently uh, five and eighteen for the season for those baseball fans uh, listening. And the, the the bottom of the bottom of the pack in the American League West, unfortunately for me, because I like the A's. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we will you leave it. You can't have a second favorite team, Joey. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm I grew I grew up in, in the Bay Area. You can't have a second favorite team. team. The A's are my second favorite team. You I can love them both. Wait, wait what's your? If it's not the Giants and the A's. That, that is <laughs> absurd. I have. Wait, a... your first favorite team is the Giants? Yeah, I grew up in the Bay Area. You can't have a first and second from the same area. It's No, everyone likes the... the I have no. a hat that's literally the A's and the Giants. Everyone no. likes the A's and the Giants. You if you're not from the Bay Area, you don't understand. No, I <laughs> I have... Like, I'm a Mariners fan and, like, a Boston Red Sox fan. I can do that because they're on separate coasts. Bold. Well, I don't... I uh, still you know disagree what? about that, but I'll just say, if you are a fan of the A's and the Giants, um, please stop. That's ridiculous. I, no, I have my I have a hat that has both the A's and the Giants on it from when they played in the World Series in the 80s. Uh, and we'll leave it at that. As long as no one's a Dodgers fan, we're all happy here. <laughs> all right, Jacob, let's get to that outro. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Rocio Hernandez, Mayoka Foreman, Tabitha Mueller, and Sean Galanka for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendells and, of course, my lovely co-host, Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.